0: It's time for First Voices Radio with Chilkinson, Ghost Horse. Please stay tuned. What makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Joshua
1: Altyazı
2: Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. It's good for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio, and I'm Teokas and Ghost And uh, This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced, First Voices Radio. Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. You can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices Indigenous Radio. Dot .org for archives. Our first guest, Micheline DuClef is a correspondent for National Public Radio's Science Desk and was part of the 2015 team that earned a George Foster Peabody Award for its coverage of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Micheline has a doctorate in chemistry from the University of California, Berkeley and masters in viticulture and enology from the University of California, Davis. She lives in San Francisco and Micheline's first book, Hunt Gather Parent which is an instant hit on New York Times bestseller talks about the relationship of westerners of occidental Europe and America that raises kids very much differently and very brand new in raising that from Dr. Spock on and in this interview with Michaeline Duclef is very revealing as to how different the majority of the world raises kids differently and only 12% of the world raises the way the Western, you, the Westerner, the listener, raise your children. We're going to go right to that, and it's a great honor to welcome Michaeline Duclef to First Voices Radio.
3: Gosh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm so looking forward to, to speaking with you.
2: I'm going to resonate with what you said in the book, Hunter, Gather, Parent, what a balance that is that when we all come from this place as you described in the book is what children are we blossoming out of this and mm-hmm. what led you in the first place to come to this idea because of your in your daughter rosie and your conversation you were having that wasn't being spoken to
3: yes exactly you know I think she was speaking to me a lot so she was too when this first started and you know we say she was having tantrums and getting very upset at me and I didn't know how to listen to her. I feel like and I didn't know how to talk back to her in a way that she could understand and we just were in this constant power struggles and constant conflict and the way I've been was raised you know I'm I'm white and middle class and I was raised that like parents and children, are supposed to argue with each other and, and get in this conflict. And that's kind of what I thought. And this book is about a different way. And I, in my travels for my work, I'm a health correspondent for NPR. I went down to a small Maya village and the parents there, especially the moms showed me this different way of interacting with a child that wasn't full of anger and conflict. And I just immediately wanted to learn more and I immediately gravitated towards it because it just felt so much better that it felt like the children that they were blossoming, as you say, were kind and helpful and genuinely wanted to work together with their, with their parents. And I, to be honest with you, I had never, in my experience, I had never seen anything like that. And it was, it was so powerful to me. Um, and really, this book is about me trying to understand it and learn learn it at forty four. And I can't say it's perfect at all, but I can say that um i've I've gotten better. I've gotten better at talking to Rosie and and appreciating what she's saying and what she's bringing and trying to work together with her instead of like drag her along with what I think is best.
2: So when you talk about Rosie in a sense, how, programmed or reprogrammed we need to be uh, not to to quote unquote to unlearn what we had to in this society as I'm uh, coming from my culture and I had to adapt a lot do you see yourself adapting in return to what you learned from the Maya the the Inuit or in Alaska and the people in Africa
3: yes absolutely and I think you are you were right. One of the the um, the Inuit women in Alaska actually, Karina Kramer told me she said that she thinks that Western culture, European American culture puts these kind of goggles on our eyes that we that um, that make us see kind of children in a different way or other people in a way that's conflictual and kind of antagonistic. And what she says is that I'm learning to like take the goggles off and and see, um, people and children in a way that's cooperative and that, um, that genuinely creates a cooperative relationship. Um, So I feel like, but she says, she told me, she's like, you're always going to veer back to this like Western way because that's the way I was raised. Um, But she said to me, and this just resonates with me so much. She said, you always have to just keep thinking about the relationship and like, is it going to improve the relationship or hurt the relationship? And so I've actually been trying to do that with all my relationships now, like even at work or my husband, you know, like is what I'm going to say hurt this relationship or improve it and, and connect more. And I think that's what I've been trying to adapt. That's what I've been trying to kind of unlearn is this way of relating to people that's conflictual and antagonistic, which I think kind of pervades Western society in a really kind of vicious way.
2: You mentioned that 12% of the world's population is is white. I would say that, but right. I use the word Occidental. Yep. Occidental, an influence somewhere right. out of Europe, right? In America is that symptom right. of what Occidental people came from. But so when I'm feeling what you're reading here, I get a sense that we're all looking for that relationship as, as you intend in it, but yeah. something to go back to our core But yet we are expected as modern day people to go to the programming coming from people like Dr. Spock, where the males were telling their mothers, their wives, their daughters how to behave in a certain way, how to raise children. But yet men were always outside the relationship of the core home that you talk about.
3: Yes, I think this is something that happened like probably about... 200, three, even 300 years ago in in Europe, um, where there's this shift from the women raising the children together with the grandmothers and the aunts and passing down the knowledge from one generation to the next through um, help, helping each other to this idea that there were like white men, some, mostly doctors, sometimes not, that they decided that they knew how to raise children better. And then they started writing these books about, pamphlets even for orphanages or orphan hospitals. And they even explicitly said like, this this act of child raising has been too long left to women and now men of sense must take it. And so they wrote these books, um, you know, like I say in the book, like nevertheless, the fact that women have been doing it for 200,000 years, you know, um, and they wrote these books and, and this was a time too in Europe where families were starting to separate from, from their from the generations. So people would leave their families. And so they lost the grandmothers and the aunts in the homes. And these books turned into really the only information that or the the big, the vast majority of the information about parenting came from. And some of the advice is just ridiculous. And and yet we just we still hold on to it in like you say, like modern you know society holds onto this this advice that comes from you know a surgeon turned sports writer from the 1700s about how to get a baby to go to sleep um it's it's ridiculous if you think about it and and the other thing is we're told that this is the right way this is the correct way and if you don't do anything else you're going to hurt the child or you're you know you're in the wrong which is to me just crazy to be Just crazy, right? We've totally lost sight of like what it means to 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 parent, I think, in many, in many ways. But we haven't because you were raised a different way, right? That it's there. The flames are there, right? It's
2: interesting. I think about the history of Europe where the witches and the so-called warlocks were, you know, that earth the earth people, that connection was gone. Mm. And then it became a more monotheistic patriarchal government. Uh, religion science and it became one of male dominated and therefore the books um so I I, and I go back to our, our origin of all of us and I'm thinking well hunt gather parent may seem too literal but yet when we were growing up in this society as as native people adapting to knowing that there was a different way to think but yet, it's still, even in my age, I'm still adapting to a society, speaking its language, learning how to get along in this society by being aggressive, by, by mm-hmm. centering the eye in front. But as you mm-hmm. alluded to, I think, is that because we lost connection to nature, because mm-hmm. in, in nature, animals, the wind, the, the, the elemental consciousness that's out there is also showing us but not teaching us. Therefore, we can't be taught. But we, like you mentioned, babies are alongside
3: the mothers, the
2: fathers, and they're shown, you know, without being instructed.
3: Oh, this is so huge, right? Like this idea that children learn only when you're telling them, when you're explaining and lecturing. um, This is so entrenched in in our culture now that that's the way you teach children is with like these words, all these words and other cultures value so much. One one person said privilege, many cultures give privilege to learning through observation. So instead of like in Western European American culture, we give privilege to, um, you know, instruction and telling people what to do. And the information comes from the teacher to the child or the parent to the child. And learning through observation from what I've gleaned is, is more mutual. There's a, you go about your business, you do your, your work and the child, like you said, is there with you and they learn at the pace that they need to learn at. And they take the information in as they can and, and, and slowly over time, they acquire a skill and it's much less stressful for the child. And I think for the parent child relationship,
2: you know, what you're saying is very important. The relationship that we all learn. I think we are born metaphorically. We learned a logic later about how to be competitive in a program, how to yes. be a parent, even the classes of the parenting classes. And I, I remember par- relatives of mine going to the local college to learn how to be parents. Yes. But yet, none of that could be applied because it seemed to be already instilled with the simple nod or wink and the signals that you were talking about with the maya family and i think it was comadida or comadida a comadido
3: or comadida yes yes wonderful word
2: and then those words are it feels like an accommodation on both parts
3: that's exactly right right that there's Mutual responsibility on both ends. I I'm helping you, and you help, and you are expected to help back. And um, yeah, a comedito is, and is an, an amazing idea. Uh, um, I was just speaking to a researcher in Los Angeles about it, and she was telling me, you know, it's it's this complex skill, right, where you have to pay attention to to what your parents are doing to the world. You have to know when you can help so when you have the skills to help if you know and you have to know what to do and and it's a and it's a skill that um the maya families start teaching the children since when they're babies and slowly over time they learn this skill and it's this this like uh, art of pitching in and helping voluntarily and spontaneously but knowing knowing what to do and also interestingly knowing what not to do so knowing when not to help when you might just be interfering which i found really interesting you know yes.
2: no thank you for that it's that in in some languages indigenous languages there there is this this lexicon or this way of speaking that in our languages you're speaking about the energy then you're then you're describing mm. the energy so mm. that there's less subjectivity or less objectivity you see and so and you find in the sense that when I read the acronym WEIRD Western Education Western Education in Industrialized Rich Democracies. Give us that one.
3: <laughs> okay, this is, this is, yeah, this is a, something a Harvard researcher came up with because like you said, Western white Occidental people make up about 12% of the earth right now, of people-wise, um, but they, but in terms of psychological research, they're like 96%. So all this psychological research has been done on these white people, middle-class white people. Um, and, and then and a lot of times researchers say, well, that's how humans act, right? And then, but if you actually look, those people actually behave really strangely in psychological experiments compared to many other many other cultures around the world in this the small amount that they've been studied. And so he came up with this idea weird because European Americans uh or European heritage people behave very weirdly in psychological experiments. And they are not the norm. They are not the universal like they think they are. <laughs> they are they are strange and actually when it comes to parenting do incredibly strange things and it speaks back to what we talked about I think because of some of these books and you know um, and yeah and and I think it's why we have so many problems that we have because like you say we're going against the core we're going against the core of the child
2: well the extended family comes to mind where you do have your grandma your grandparents even grand great-grandparents but also there is a sense of Ownership that seems to be Mm. that's my daughter, that's my son. But in the older traditionals, uh, languages, and cultures, there is no sense of ownership that that's not my daughter, but that's my younger sister, that's my younger brother. So you're already born into equality, even if biologically you're the parents. So things start (gasps) equally. But it also brings to mind how the examples you used in Hunt, Gather, Parent. How much praise is needed to fill a vacant void because of how we were programmed, as you say, a few hundred years this has come into play in the in the occidental mindset government and permeates throughout the so-called culture. And now we are at a point where realization of this mm-hmm. consciousness that you're talking about, because I think it's a mm. consciousness in his book. Do we understand the language about how to even retain, sustain as you are actuating in your life, how to sustain that? People want mm-hmm. instructions about how to, right? Right, right, yeah, and, right. And when I get back to the indigenous science uh, thought process, it's there is no conjunctive, I think it's a conjunctive, aware. there's no such thing as to be.
3: Oh, interesting. Interesting. So so is it it's an unlearning like you say.
2: It opens up and it frees you from the harness of restricted thinking that you are not <sighs> the center of the universe but that the center of the universe is everywhere.
3: Interesting. That and that is what children need, right? They need that that perspective
2: that magic that we talk about in the West, that magic, actually, it means something like to use the tools of the earth properly. That's the magic, magic. So you're talking about the practicality within the book of what we can do, rather than what we cannot do.
3: I have to think about that. That is, <laughs> that, is that is, very, very good. Wow. Yeah. <laughs>
2: But thank you for this. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. I just so, I, you know, as, as you see, I've been halfway through it and I'm looking forward to things like how do we turn out? How do we raise confident kids so that it will eliminate the greed, the, the need mm. for wanting
3: Mm -hmm, the the mm -hmm. more
2: relationship even going beyond the human factor of anthropocentricity is is the fact that we need now these kids to be related to the earth once more and yeah to help us um have peace with earth so to speak
3: yes yes that relationship badly needs um mending
2: when you talk about ancient cultures that is is in us all it's inherent it's it's that empathy for Earth as well as human beings and all life. And once we get past ourselves as humans, then you can really read between the lines. And I think this is the most impactful book mm. to a- allow parents to see that maybe there is another way. And there is yeah. another way, actually, as you mentioned, th- that 12% of the world you know, is so restricted. But now this is opening up and to regain that art, like you say, of... of Raising kids yeah. or rather, it seems today kids are raising us now,
3: mm, yes, <laughs> that is that is very true, and I don't think they enjoy it. I really don't I think it it stresses them out it's not you know they they want us to raise them they want <laughs> they need us to raise them, uh, you know and they yeah. and they they need that connection God, we all need connection, I feel like Ooh.
2: I'm wondering. Did you intentionally go to Maya country to find out how the differences in raising parents? Or did, did that just come to you? What was that moment? No.
3: I actually went down there. So, you know, I'm trained as a scientist and my whole life has been science, science, science. And then Rosie, the baby is what, like, dislodged that. And was like, <laughs> There's something else out there. She, you know, shook me. Um, but I actually went down to the village, this little village to study, to look at, attention and how children pay attention which actually if you think about a is a lot about attention right looking paying attention which is something i think a lot of our kids are missing wide attention but when i got so it wasn't about really parenting at all um but when i got down there i just have to tell you like it, like i said i was just i was just i was knocked off my feet i i, I mean for months because like you said there it was the first time i really felt like there's a better way. There's a much better way. And like you say, like it felt like something deeper and something that was more, that was something core going on. And, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, I actually didn't do anything about it. It just kind of sat on it for months and months. And then I went up to the Arctic and I saw similar Relationship between parents and children. And I saw, you know, I mean, it's very different and parents are very different, but you could still see that thread, that common thread. And then I started to really like wonder like, oh, maybe there's not only a better way, but maybe what we're doing is a really crazy way. <laughs> like, you know, and I started reading and I started, so that's how that came about. It really was um, not intentional. I kind of given up as a parent. I thought like, like I told you, like I thought that conflict was, I think a lot of parents feel like conflict is is necessary between a child and a parent and what especially the moms in the Arctic and the dads you know they taught me that no conflict is not necessary and in fact it's harmful
2: and to understand that sometimes language is the first weapon drawn in conflict that comes mm-hmm. early in societies that are often warlike societies and and right. I go back to what I see little boys playing with guns and and little girls playing with dolls. But you think about toys in general. I didn't grow up with toys, not because by choice or that we were poor. We just didn't need toys in that sense to put in front of us to stumble over and the parents fall over these toys. Metaphorically, that's what it is, therefore, to to divert attention. Could you tell us about The idea of toys.
3: Yeah, this is so fascinating. So like you say, like 150 years ago, you know, across America, and every culture, every class, you know, economic group, no kid had toys, you know, parents. Maybe a parent would um, help a child make something like a doll, a baby, a little doll or something out of cloth or something very simple. Um, But otherwise, all parents thought, you know, children can make their own toys. Children can, you know, like go outside and get some wood and make something or some cloth or, um, and so toys, toys, toys were really this creation of like Western psychology, consumerism, industrial revolution, you know, kind of this idea that parents needed to buy things for kids. And then as things got made on this mass scale, you know, it just exploded. And now, there's this thinking that if you don't give a child a toy, like some, you're a bad parent, right? It's completely been baked into our concept of what parenting is. But I can't tell you how, how nice it is to just get rid of the toys. <laughs> it clears the space and the mind. And, and, you know, Rosie still plays with, she still she figures out stuff to play with all the time. And just she creates her own toys out of pillows and yeah. string and cloth. And she does not need any, anything bought. Wow. Anything bought.
2: The way you describe it, it sounds like Rosie knows what's necessary and required, basically what we're required as parents to let them show us what is necessary to raise them. Yes.
3: Yes. This is so huge, right? That they have it in them and we have to watch. You know, one of the Maya moms told me, you know, we watch the child for a long time to figure out how this child's going to grow and what they need. So it's just like what you said, it all comes from the child and the, the parent is is helping to enact that.
2: One last thought, let's go to Africa. You went to yes. Tanzania, I believe. And, yes. and there you learned that it's similar, even though the culture was different, it was a similar earth-based, I'd say, um, behavior about how to Oops. relate.
3: Yeah, so there, there's this... Uh, culture called the Hazabe which are this incredible culture who have actively fought off change of their culture so the catholic church it's not in the book but the catholic church has tried to modernize or whatever you want to settle like all these things for hundreds of years And this culture has said no we are we have been in this land for thousands of years and we have we have thrived you know we have had very little, no famine like we have you know there's been problems sometimes but we have thrived we do not need your rules and in fact in one of the books i have one of the um so they hunt with bow and arrow they hunt uh, um they don't raise crops um they forage tubers and baobao bao tree baobab seeds but one of the books i have one of the elders says you know we could go buy a gun but we choose not to because we know that the bow wolf hunt the exact right amount of animals. If we had a gun, we would shoot too many. It's an incredible, right? There's just this incredible relationship with the land is what yeah. I saw and felt, I felt it. Um, it was yeah. inc- incredible people. And so then they have the same kind of relationship with their children, right? Where they, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a watching, it's a, it's a give and a take. I'm gonna help you, but you, I expect you to help the group right so there's always a looking inward to the group and that's where I really learned that I was being an incredibly bossy parent that I was telling Rosie what what to do way too often I mean out of love I have to tell you out of love um but like like you said like she could do it she can do it you know I needed to step way back and I think they kept making fun some of the dads kept making fun of me because I was just so bossy
2: I thank you for, for this. I think it's very fascinating, this hunt gather parent. And, and when you refer to ancient cultures, and people probably want to, as you, you said, how to, yeah. you know, change things now. But there's also a saying that we can actually see how to relate to our children to see the results within this lifetime. And therefore, mm. we can see the seven generations forward. That's why the extended family, and and I think yes. that the nuclear is in a sense restrictive. Yes. In yes, we put old, old people in in the retirement homes, and we have separation from kids in classrooms, and there there's also this dividing and new psychologies coming out, and you know. But when it comes back to it, we all 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 are sitting around the fire, under mm. the tree, and speaking the same language without ever verbalizing it because we understand deep down anyway final thoughts Dean.
3: you know i i have i was very ignorant about indigenous cultures before i went on this to write this book and have traveled and i just want to learn as much as i can about the richness on this continent in this land and um because I think there's just enormous quantities of sophisticated knowledge and wisdom when it comes to parenting and just relationships. And we need it. The weird Western culture needs it um, yeah. <laughs> so much. Yeah. I thank you so much for having me and sharing your knowledge. And I could, I could talk to you forever about it. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, me too. I, I think what you, one expression that I can give to this is that you helped me to understand even further that now that children speak that quantum physics language that as adults in this society have made ourselves too logical and reasoned mm-hmm. without and removed the sacredness between children and ourselves as adults. And I think you and I hope if I could give you a review, review for that, that's what I would say about that. You linked us. Well,
3: thank you. Thank you so much. Just okay. wonderful
2: such an honor talking to you and thank you the hunt gather parent what asian cultures can teach us about the lost art of raising happy healthful little humans micheline duclef thank you so much and you you.
3: too okay Bye. Bye. bye
2: First Voices Radio, we offer our listeners a perspective they have been missing for far too long, the voices of indigenous peoples, and we appreciate the limited supply of human beings who will listen. Our website is firstvoicesindigenousradio.org. I am Tioksen Ghost Horse, and your commentary is always welcome at teokasin at gmail.com. It's always a privilege to be here. And the planet's roughly 350 million indigenous peoples took notable steps on our international stage in the last decade. They got the world's governments to agree to create a body to represent them at the United Nations, the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, and to appoint a special repertoire responsible for their human rights. In 2007, a Universal Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was, was approved by the United Nations, yet the living conditions of most tribal, Aboriginal, Native, or First Peoples remains precarious. And First Voices Radio is committed to tracking the world's communities' efforts do justice to the rights and aspirations of these peoples. We have William Hensley, and I I want to offer this time for William to speak on First Voices Radio. What this is about is a book called Fifteen Miles from Tomorrow. In 1971, after years of Hensley's tireless lobbying, the U.S. conveyed 44 million acres and earmarked nearly one billion for use by Alaska Natives. Alaska Native peoples. This is an inspiring true story of one man's quest to preserve and defend his peoples or a native spirit, Liskuziet. Uh, I hope that's right. And uh, he has uh, written this memoir of his childhood among the indigenous Inupiaq people of Alaska and his lifelong crusade, including a stint in Congress to protect their culture and way of life. Hensley brilliantly portrays how the lessons he learned in childhood, battling the wilderness of Alaska without many basic necessities, helped him as an adult to battle the hardships of political corruption and deceit to order, in order to preserve his heritage. He is also a leader and author of What's, What Rights to Land Have the Alaska Natives, the primary issue, which was the background behind the passage. Of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act in 1971. And Willie will be reading passages from his recently released and critically acclaimed book, 50 Miles from Tomorrow. And uh, his chronicles his life, like I said before. And what I'd like to do right now is wel- welcome William Hensley. And William, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to uh, mispronounce this middle name here. It starts with an I. It'd be an honor for me to hear it in your language.
0: if you had a rec- I'm I'm named for my grandfather, and in our language, Irvik is a mountain. Irvik is like a small mountain. Uh, That's my name. Uh, It's a guttural G. The the G is a dotted G, so it's Mm Irvik. So I always say that if you can pronounce my name and the name of my hometown, you could probably speak Inupiaq. That's Ah. our language. Uh, We are Inuit. Uh, We say Inupiaq are the real people. That's Mm -hmm. where... The, the title comes from mm-hmm. partly the book, but uh, I'm a me kikiktaarug, in our language, is an island. is like uh, a small island. Uh, so if you could say and you have hopes to speak our language. I'd
2: have to try that a few times. <laughs> That's a great, it's a great language, sounding yeah. language, too. And uh, I, I want to, I was impressed by the few passages that I was able to read oh. here about the battles that you have had growing up um, in the northwestern part of Alaska, where, you know, um, you would say, according to your your title and how you got your title, 50 miles from tomorrow, you were explaining that to me. Um, people want to know, what does 50 miles from tomorrow mean?
0: Okay. Juliana, uh, let's thank you. Um, actually, my first title, believe it or not, was uh, We Stop Dancing. We stopped dancing, and that was based on a true story that took place across the Sound from uh, Kotzebue at a place called Naboktoktok, where a missionary had decided that our our dances were sinful, and for many years we stopped dancing. But uh, I changed the title. I described my hometown as being 29 miles above the Arctic Circle, about 90 miles from the Russian mainland, and 50 miles from the International Date Line, which is tomorrow so that's the title 50 miles from tomorrow
2: hmm And um, I, I read this passage earlier, and you were there before Cortex replaced wolfskin in parkas. And most people out there maybe don't remember as, as civilization and the amenities of civilization have come a lot earlier to the mainland here. And uh, as I grew up on a reservation, we didn't have those amenities also until, you know, I was later on in my childhood. And we remember just exactly what you remember of that happened Having Coleman lamps and uh, getting our own you know heat yes
0: well in in our world I mean it it is amazing the kind of transition that we've uh, survived in in our part of the world Um, it is one of the most inhospitable climates on earth but that was our civilization I mean and and uh, even at the time of my youth, you know, in the, in the 40s and 50s, uh, you know, there was really not much between us and the natural universe. That is, virtually everything that we wore, we had to create. And in order to create them, we had to catch the animals first. Uh, so we were very intimate with, uh, with the natural world. Uh, we, I lived in three different sod houses as a kid, uh, because w- our preference was to live outside of my hometown, called Kotzebue. Uh, We were about 10 miles from town, but in those days it was like a hundred, because you had to use dogs to go back and forth or paddle. Uh, And so I I was there, in in reality, uh, before the snow machine age, when we still traveled by dog team, and uh, before we could really afford outboards. I I remember when we actually got our first five horse, I thought this is a tremendous amount of power and uh you know and we live off the land i mean we lived on the pretty much the same animal and plant life and bird life that had sustained our people for literally 10,000 years and uh and, and of course uh uh it was a very hard life it was a good life but it was uh oftentimes a short life because uh you know, you're always out there uh you know in in blizzards you're out there uh you know trying to find your way with your dog team in a in a, in a storm or Or winds would come up uh, in the summer Uh, uh, it it was an exciting life but oftentimes a hard life and oftentimes a hungry life Um, but it was our life and uh, unfortunately we like many minority peoples around the world uh, we sort of got caught up in tremendous changes that really we had very little control over
2: Mm -hmm. And those changes came in the form of certain Alaskan Native people noticing what we would, in the lower 48, call the the Jim Crow Laws. Uh And you remember these times.
0: Well, you know, we have a long history. And of course, it started pretty much uh, in the late 1700s with the arrival of the Russians out in the Aleutian Chain. And within 125 years that the Russians were there, the Aleuts lost about, 100, about 90% of their population through disease and enslavement uh, as they were going after the sea otters, which is what they were there for. And then, of course, there was this transition when the, when the United States government uh, acquired whatever rights that the Russians had. And interestingly enough, yesterday, as I went into a building, I, I saw the name of a law firm, called Cravath, Swain, and Moore, and they were the ones that handled the transaction, mm-hmm. I discovered. You know, they're still here, <laughs> you know, for, for for the Americans. And uh, in any case, um, and, and then, of course, we began a, a new saga uh, as, uh, even though at the time of the, uh, the so-called purchase, there were about thirty thousand Alaska Natives uh of many kinds: Klinkets, right? Aleuts, Yupik, Inupiaq, which I am Athabascans, and there were all never more than one thousand Russians in all of Alaska during the entire one hundred and twenty twenty-five year period that they were there. And so, for them to have claimed sovereignty, well, hell, most of us never saw one of them, yeah. you know. <laughs> and so, um, and so, but then. Over the course of time, uh, you know, we began to be sort of, you know, treated pretty much like minorities have been treated uh, on the Native American continent. Uh, we had no rights, really legal rights, in in, in spite of the, the Treaty of Session. Uh You know, they did not recognize us as citizens until 1924 with the Indian Citizenship Act. So during the gold rush phase and during the whaling days in the 1800s where they were going after the whales that our people depended on, you know, we really had no way to protect ourselves. Or, when the canned salmon industry started building uh, canneries along all the major salmon streams that people depended on. So, over the course of time, I mean, it became harder and harder for our people, and then then we became the beneficiaries of uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs' uh, uh, educational style, which is essentially to disconnect us from our identities and our cultures, and, and uh, this in conjunction by the way with uh, with church groups that uh, in their mind they were doing the right thing but but in the end it was a, a, a very a very uh, harsh and uh, stressful uh, change as they began to try to take children and disconnect them from their parents and grandparents and trying to teach them a new language and yeah. And uh, I think uh, we are still paying the price for these kinds of changes in our lives.
2: We're speaking with William Hensley, who is the author of 50 Miles from Tomorrow, a memoir of Alaska and the real people. William, the United States had never won any land from from alaska natives in battle and it had never signed any treaties with the alaska natives and legal precedent was clear if land had not been taken in battle or seized by an act of congress the federal courts had consistently found that native americans retain aboriginal title to it that had to mean that we that you still owned most of alaska is is that in the minds of most of the alaska natives today that you still own alaska
0: well um, let's put it this way, uh, never in our wildest imaginations did we ever thought that we not own this land because we'd been on it for 10,000 years. In fact, uh, uh, I think uh, it is highly unusual, I think, in, in Native America for Native Americans to actually be in the same environs in which they have uh, uh, thrived, you know, for literally thousands of years and that has been the case in Alaska we have uh, over 200 villages from many different tribes uh that uh, that never got displaced um only in minor instances uh so we are still in our same homeland but of course needless to say we we didn't have that recognized piece of paper that the world would say aha yes you do you know and so that was a situation we were in besides that we didn't have the kind of mentality about Private property that uh, that Westerners had mm-hmm. had, and we didn't really we really couldn't see sort of the nature of the survey system uh, that this country has, and uh, we we only knew our land from our own cultural perspective, uh, the names, the places. All all those spaces that people assumed were wide open were not in fact wide open because it took a huge amount of land for our communities to thrive. And so while you might have had these sort of like little mini-nations of, you know, hundreds of people, but yet we used hundreds and maybe thousands of square miles because of the paucity of the animal life and we had to really work for it. Uh, So there was very little space that actually was not utilized. And so, but it took the uh, the act of statehood to really precipitate the conflict, uh, and that little paper I wrote in 1966, essentially who owned Alaska, well, basically just confirmed what our people felt about the land. It's just that I went back and I... Did the paper trail, Mm -hmm. you know, going back and looking at the Treaty of Session, going back and looking at the Constitution, looking at court cases, going back to Justice Marshall, Mm -hmm. uh, looking at the various federal laws, looking at the system of uh, compensation that was so inequitable that had been utilized uh, up until that point. But at the conclusion of my research, uh, I realized that that underlying uh, aboriginal title had actually not been extinguished. And according to the court cases I read, uh, it had to be a conscious thing that you just could not assume that it was extinguished. And yet, while on the one hand the Congress was saying to the new state, well, we're going to give you 103 million acres, but on the other hand, we disclaim all right or title to native lands. Well, you couldn't have it both ways, mm-hmm. but somebody, you know, was trying to pull the wool over our eyes. And uh, and so uh, that was the the, the linchpin of our claims in the sixties where we began to make these blanket claims and in reality we had to stop the state's selection program otherwise once the land had been selected and 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 this tentative approval given by the secretary of interior we would never have gotten it back mm-hmm. and so we fought desperately uh, for the land and uh... believe it or not uh... richard nixon signed the bill
2: Believe it or not yeah. and so as a young man you went off to school and you were sent by missionaries you you, you got your education you lobbied hard in congress for this 1971 Alaska Native Claims Act and uh, now the uh they they're still after the Alaska in a few minutes we have left they're still after the land of the Nupiat of all the native peoples there because there's something very precious underneath that land is this the next thing on the horizon that you're fighting you know uh, I may
0: have a little bit of a different perspective. I don't know. We have 44 million acres. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, let's put it this way. I, mean, I was one of many. I mean, I, I, I helped give voice to our, our cause, you know, and, and I have never claimed to be, uh, you know, the father of this or that mm-hmm. because it took all of us who had no funding, no... Uh, no lawyers at the beginning we had no means of communication that but we knew this was a desperate fight and so we managed to come together in spite of many many differences we came together and uh, to me the real danger is the loss of identity in in the future uh, we have 44 million acres and we have 12 regional corporations that are native-owned that are overseeing the land and taking care of the investments but If we lose our identity, it's going to go. Because if it comes down to a choice between your heritage and your identity, your language and your people, versus a dollar sign, if you don't have a strong identity, you know what the decision is going to be. Right. Right. That's essentially the nuts and bolts of 50 miles from tomorrow. I mean, there's many things. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in reality, it's a story about the powerless and the powerful. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a story about minorities and majorities, and in our case, it's a it's a it's a, it's a sort of an unholy alliance between church and state to try to manipulate our mentality and our identity, and so, of course, I'm fighting for us to keep ours.
2: That's right, and this is uh, William Hensley, who is the author of Fifty Miles from Tomorrow, a memoir of Alaska, and find out more about uh, William Hensley's. Uh, Stirring memoir of his childhood, which I, I I hope to get this and be able to see it and read it because it reminds me so much of of how uh, a lot of people around the world in the United States have not grown up and have not seen and the hardships uh, such as William William has gone through in order to to get the voice of the Alaska natives out there, and this is part of that. Same struggle, and uh, the primary issue is identity, like uh, William said. And, William, it's so good to to uh, have you in studio. Can you uh, give us a last word here?
0: Well, I came down to Wall Street to find out what they did with my money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's great uh
2: yeah well that's the last word
0: well no no i just i really appreciate this is a great surprise and a pleasant surprise to find your station here and I, i really appreciate uh your having me on the air to talk to america
2: it's great and uh william hensley thank you so much for coming it's always an honor to welcome the people from Alaska here, and I know it must be the time change. What is six six hours or something like that? Four. Four hours. Thank you for coming in. Also, the one I saw last night was called "For the Rights of All: Ending Jim Crow in Alaska." And this was two decades before anything was ever passed, and before uh, anything was ever passed in the United States, Lower 48, uh, before Alaska was a state. Jim Crow and the Anti-Discrimination Acts. Were passed in Alaska, and people—that's an unknown fact, hardly ever known—and yes. it's a very inspiring story. I watched it, and I wanted to just talk about that all all the time now because I know more about Alaska that I thought I didn't. Well,
0: so I will send 50 miles from tomorrow oh, for you, okay. and you may have that one.
2: Oh, here we go! Thank you so much. And uh, this is First Voices Radio. You can also visit williamhensley.com, dot com. I believe it is a Willie Hensley. Willie with IE, Hensley, H E N S L E Y dot com, and find out more about Alaska and uh, why they continue on in Alaska.
1: Straight up. got as far as the clinic made for the care take matter Yeah
2: So, thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. We have some interesting guests coming up in the future. So, please stay tuned to First Voices Radio. Doksha Ake, watching till.